became a stream emptor and uh, reached the first stage of enlightenment uh, in uh, the Theravadan tradition. Enlightenment is, um, is divided up into four stages. And the first one is you have no doubt about your uh, place in the whole universe of things. There's, there's no doubt about feeling yourself to be a separate individual, isolated and uh, alone. So, um, um, so then my teacher, Ruth, and this is a story I wanted to tell about her. Early on when I was sitting with her, she talked about her experience right after her time with Ubikin when she went to Japan. And she had worked diligently with Ubikin in this room that I think was only six foot by four foot. So, um, sitting, and then just a five-minute break for stretching and sitting, and then just a five-minute break, starting at 4.30 in the morning and going through to um, midnight, just sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting. Worked diligently. Sometimes she said she stood on her head, but didn't tell her teacher that because she <laughs> was going nuts. <laughs> um, Henry, her husband, hadn't been quite so diligent and had gotten more involved with having chai and intellectual discussions with other students around um, a table outside the meditation center. And so Henry wanted to continue in the searching for teachers and enlightenment. And so they went to Japan and they sat with, and I can't remember the master that they sat with, but Sandy Boucher has written a book about her called Dancing in the Darkness that's here. That's a wonderful book about Ruth, if you want to read about a quite incredible journey of a spiritual seeker and teacher. So she's in this um, center in Japan and is making tremendous effort in focusing on her breath. And somehow that effort was a little out of balance. And she finds herself on the, on the roof, in the corner of the room, that she's out of her body totally. And she cannot get back into her body. And so she begins to freak out because she can feel her body weakening because it doesn't have any consciousness in it. So she manages to speak in a sort of clumsy fashion to someone who walks into the room and says, get the master, I think I'm dying. And so the master comes. Maybe you could, are, are you awake? Oh, good. The master comes and she manages to say, I can't get back into my body. Then die, says the master. And that shocks her so much that she comes back into her body. <laughs> But she is totally disintegrated in her body. There is no capacity to be mindful. There's no capacity to focus. There's, there's no sense of, of, of um, wholeness of being that we have you know, called for um, today and um, our own minds and hearts. And so um, she spends hours and hours with her broom. She lives in the desert. Um, uh, her center is in the desert, sweeping the sand off the concrete around uh, the main house, um, even though the wind just blows it back again, saying, I'm sweeping, I'm sweeping. 
And then the other thing she does is that she puts her dog, who she named after her teacher, uh, was a little black, I'm not a dog person, so a little black dog. <laughs> <laughs> she puts her dog on her chest and uses the heat and the weight of the dog on her chest to invite her mind to connect with the experience. Every afternoon for hours, she has this dog on her chest, inviting that focus, not finding it, but inviting it. And I tell the story because it is such an inspiration to me in terms of faith, and that she persevered through years of this incredible lack of capacity to be present and to focus and to hold her experience. She just persevered and persevered. And that's faith. That quality, it's said in the Abhidharma, that is able to grasp what's profitable. That energy that is said is the forerunner of all other wholesome qualities in the mind. That is to say, that if there's any other skillful quality in our mind, there always is faith as well. So just to um, <coughs> backtrack a little bit and talk about these qualities of mind for those of us who knew in our community. In a, spl in, in a, a split, 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 split second, a one thousandth of a second, um, it, um, there is a moment of consciousness. And then an, uh, it's that quickly it, that the consciousness comes into being and, and dies away. That's how quickly our consciousness is arising and dying away. And in every moment of consciousness, there are seven universals, universal factors of mind, which are perception and the ability for our sense organs to make contact with the outside world, the uh, mental factor of contact, perception, awareness, the rudimentary awareness, so right now you know you're hearing, that very rudimentary awareness of knowing what the sense experience is. And then there are 14, I think there are 14, unwholesome qualities. And uh, what's so beautiful about naming these unwholesome qualities is because they have one consequence only, and that is suffering. And we have these arising in our consciousness. So envy, jealousy, anger, greed, ignorance. Um, uh, what have I, I don't know, I forgot. Laz uh, laziness, sloth, torpor, anxiety, doubt. So I, I haven't done that, but you get the idea. <laughs> <laughs> In every moment of consciousness, when we feel one of these energies, there is always one quality that is always present, and some of you can guess this already, and it's delusion. When we experience any of those energies, desire, clinging, we always have in that moment delusion. And what's the characteristic of delusion? It's not seeing things clearly as they truly are. It's not seeing the situation correctly. Now, 
I happen to love, I just love this particular teaching because when I am feeling envy, and for example, I have a friend who has a lot of money, and when I walk into her house, I notice envy coming up. You know, she has beautiful vases and beautiful textiles and beautiful furniture and it's a beautiful house and it's beautiful. <laughs> and, and, I, and I feel envy. And it's so wonderful to know, to backtrack. And this is purely on the conceptual level. Arena, if you're feeling envy, you're being deluded. And if you're being deluded, you're not seeing the situation correctly. And just to tell myself that helps me to free from the story that she has something that I don't have that I need for my happiness, which is what envy is. It's enough of a backtracking that I begin to, that I come back to that kind of, that sense or more that wisdom or faith of, oh, she has her path and I have mine. And I have innumerable blessings being here with you, being one of them, to have the blessing of coming into touch with, with uh, people who um, help awaken my faith and my love. I can't think of a greater blessing. So I have that. And so it's, it is a profound and incredible pearl of wisdom to keep close to our heart. The other side of that is that when we have faith, we know that there's only positive consequences because faith brings all the other wholesome qualities, mindfulness, joy, compassion, patience, perseverance, endurance, um, equanimity, uh, pliancy of mind, malleability of mind, there's several more that have to do with a mind that's very soft and, and flexible so that when you suggest something it immediately manifests. So those qualities, faith is the forerunner of those qualities. So I, um, I um, Sue just told me that um, Ruth broke a hip a few days ago and she's in her 80s, so you know, that's both painful and a very big deal. And she said that um, Ruth was singing. What was she singing? Happiness is here and now. Happiness <laughs> is here and now. And it was, again, just such a beautiful teaching of Ruth in incredible pain, having faith that by putting her mind in a place that brought the skillful qualities that she was taking care of herself and taking care of the whole community. That is what this faith in this tradition is about. It is, and it is the most incredible refuge. That is to know that by putting our mind in the place or contemplation of positive qualities, that we are creating the conditions for freedom and liberation and happiness. And that we can always take refuge in that. So another, another story uh, about um, faith is um, about Ramdas. I know 
some of you, because you live on the West Coast, know that Grandas had a stroke. And um, for many years, totally lost his ability to, um, to speak and also to move. So I saw him in Northampton, I think it must have been this spring, or I've forgotten. Um, at uh, First Church, we have some great radical churches in Northampton. He's in a wheelchair, and the church is packed. <coughs> and, and someone is um, pushing him up the ramp and onto the stage. And he's kind of like this. And then he says, Could. In. And that's how he spoke through the evening. And he said when he had his stroke that he felt totally abandoned by his guru because his practices, his guru, um, I've forgotten which guru it is. And, um, that he wanted to die, that he didn't want to live. And at one point, he, s he just called out in his mind to his guru, why did you abandon me and betray me? And he said he heard clearly back the voice of his guru who said, but I haven't. This is my gift to you. And so Ramdas then called forth this faith, this capacity to meet what life has brought him with the wholesome qualities of mind, with patience and perseverance and effort and friendship. And he then sat in front of us and said, and I now would not give up my stroke for anything because it has demanded of me a love that I could not find being able-bodied and being able to fully communicate. So this path of transformation of our hearts and our minds isn't dependent on pleasant conditions. It's not dependent on whether we have really lovely houses or not. It is our capacity to grow the energies of love and presence and listening and patience and perseverance. This faith is a faith that doesn't depend on <coughs> being continuous. So in the same way that many of us today and those of us who've practiced over the years know that we keep forgetting and then we come back again and we keep forgetting and we keep coming back, the same is true of faith. We forget, we move into that place of thinking, I can't, no, this is too much. And then we think, oh, I can begin again. 
So um, I've been, uh, I've just come from Santa Fe and I've been really sick for two weeks. And it was quite hard to um, teach and to be so sick. First I got flu and then it went into my stomach and I was nauseous. And in the middle of the nights I would wake up with terrible gas pains and I would watch myself feel so frustrated and kind of despairing, like, oh, my body, you know, it's like, it's just too much, I don't want it. <laughs> and, you know, and just watch my mind kind of sink into that place of identification, of feeling a victim. N not exactly why me, but like, just sort of falling into that heaviness and catching it and saying, I can begin again. I can. And, and making myself get out of bed to practice a wholesome quality because I have undying faith that by doing something wholesome like persevering and being present for my steps as I walk up and down the bedroom that I am transforming my heart and my mind. So this faith is a faith that is not sort of letting ourselves sink into our stories. Neither is it a turning way, like someone saying, well, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good. No problem. <laughs> but, but rather dropping the storyline and turning towards meeting ourselves and where we are. And having this, this um, taking refuge in the ways that we took refuge today of saying, I can, I can do this. Not necessarily even in the moment because I believe I can do it, but because all the great teachers who are liberated tell me I can do it, I can do it. And turning towards that experience and meeting that experience with friendship and presence. So it's sort of like, I'm walking and, you know, there's that tendency of the mind to go to those two extremes, sinking in, poor me, or forget it, I'm just going to will myself through this, you know, and then there's like, drop the storyline, the storyline for me is I'm never going to get better, it's just like one thing after the other, so drop the storyline. At Sapni Rinpoche, a beautiful Sochen teacher, um, when he gives the cutting through instructions, which is kind of at the heart of Dzogchen, he does this hand movement and it's like this. Turning ourselves towards ourselves. Turning ourselves towards ourselves to be there. And it's like that presence of, I'm here, I'm here for you. And then dropping the thought and dropping any agenda or expectation that we be present, just that invitation, walking, walking, and then the invitation, aligning the mind, I'm here. And the, the heart responds, the heart is called by that kind of invitation, and we find ourselves being present for ourselves in ways that are enormously healing and transformative. So, um, um, 
so the so this path about meeting ourselves no matter what the circumstances that that's what our life is about that's what our life is about mm. <laughs> cultivating these energies no matter what whether we're sick a lot or healthy or have great houses or jobs or lovers or whatever it's no matter what we've done in the past we begin anew in this very moment turning our energies towards ourselves. I'm listening, I'm speaking, I'm listening, I'm speaking. Just that. So faith in our capacity to meet our experience in such a way that the heart and mind opens and opens in a way that is limitless, which is what um, Jesus Christ exemplified for us. That moment when some people were murdering him and he said forgive them they d they're in delusion they're caught in their anger they don't know what they do they don't know what they're doing so um that capacity that is unconditional in its response always wholesome and skillful that's a buddha mind that's um the uh, outcome of perhaps lifetimes of experience. I know that some of you, Paul was just talking about it, have practiced nonviolent communication. It's a, a wonderful um, practice. I adore it. I think it's very transformative. I was in a workshop with Marshall Rosenberg, and um, we were practicing in threes, and I happened to be the big boss. I was the boss of Dow Chemical. <laughs> and, um, and I had some people coming in to, um, and they wanted to talk to me about the situation in Bhopal. I don't know if you know, but Dow Chemical has bought Union Carbide, which was the corporation that um, was responsible for that a very, very bad chemical um, um, spill and emission of pesticide poisonous fumes and um, uh, Dow Chemicals refusing to take responsibility for the still continued effect there are th hundreds of thousands of Indians in that area suffering from all kinds of cancers and sickness and because Dow Chemical won't take responsibility for um, the emission they won't tell the doctors in the medical centers the chemical makeup and so that there's no uh, capacity to, to create an antidote. It's one of my big passions is uh, talking about this. So I chose this for the example. And I, I wanted to inhabit the big chairman of Dow Chemical. So these people, we, we practice differently. And these um, people uh, who were um, really criticizing my policy mm -hmm. uh, um, came up and the first time was like, you know, uh, you know, uh, they were very angry with me, you know, we are really pissed off at you, you are responsible for so many deaths and we demand that you change your um, policy at Dow Chemical. And, you know, I'm pretending to be the boss. But, it, you know, it wasn't actually that hard. And, <laughs> and, and I was like, well, fuck you, you know. <laughs> and, and then they practiced MBC, which was, you know, uh, we, um, which is acknowledging, it doesn't matter who it is, acknowledging 
the other person's needs and um, feelings. So coming in, so he came in and they said, you know, we want to acknowledge that it must be hard for you to be in a room of people who you know have a different perspective than you. And we want to appreciate you for doing this and for taking the time. And we also know that we might have different perspectives on this, but we really appreciate you taking the time to hear what we have to say. And we believe that in the ultimate um, grand vision, we actually might share very similar understandings. And I just felt my mind and my heart open. That capacity that we have to turn in friendship towards ourselves, no matter what our experience, we actually can turn towards others. And in the same way that we can have undying faith in the good results of the beautiful qualities of mind, like listening and friendship, we actually can have that same confidence when those energies are turned out. So just sort of tying in the question that we had in our group sharing, it is actually possible to have that same undying faith in the capacity of patience and caring and loving kindness and friendship in transforming outside situations and um, outside our own bodies um, as well as internal situations. And so, you know, to name uh, a person that I name often because I consider him one of my teachers, which is Nelson Mandela, someone who went into jail in a time when the South African army was so strong that all the leaders, almost all the leaders, were either dead in jail or out of the country. And that when my parents and my, f when we left in 1962, um, my father said to me, I have no hope. I have no hope and faith for things to transform. And Mandela in jail, but not only Mandela, Sisulu, Walter Sisulu, and Robert Sukbukwe, because it wasn't, you know, in America we like to think that movements are made out of individual leaders, like, you know, Rosa Parks started the whole civil rights movement. Well, Rosa Parks had been working for years and years in, in um, in organizations amongst you know hundreds and thousands of other African Americans, and it was it was because that had already happened that her actions sparked something. So that's a digression because it's not just one person, but a whole movement and many people who are doing the same thing. So having that kind of faith of if I continue to practice these qualities, I have absolute undying faith that change will happen. And so in jail, in what appeared to be a situation that absolutely couldn't change, Nelson continues to persevere, to talk with other prisoners, to be respectful to the prison guards, to demand that African prisoners have the right to wear long trousers because they, African prisoners were only allowed to wear short trousers. And short, short trousers was very synonymous with being called a boy, which is what all African men were called, is like, boy, come here. And, and, and young boys in South Africa, young white boys, wore shorts, short, weren't allowed to wear long trousers until they were 12. 
and he demanded, so very small things, that prisoners have the right to wear long trousers. Just one thing after the other, with tremendous respect and friendship, so much so that when he was let out of jail, the prison guards lined up at the gate to shake his hand goodbye, because they had been so touched by his faith and his integrity. I just want to acknowledge for our community that's um, the incredible courage of all our sisters and brothers who came out in a time when it was very difficult to come out, much more difficult than now. That incredible courage of saying who I am, which is a deep spiritual practice, is so important that I'm willing to face the unpleasantness and backlash of that. The reason we're here is because of that faith, that that self-love was more important than any unpleasantness that was faced. So we actually are sitting here on a history of incredible faith in the capacity of our culture to transform. So, um, basically, you can't go wrong with faith. It <laughs> 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 it's really good news. <laughs> uh, and so is this dedication to the, the cultivation of the beautiful qualities of mind. Um, So let me um, just um, one more person who I really uh, who I really love in terms of faith is um, uh, uh, Guillermo Gavira, and um, he was kidnapped. He was um, he was a mayor in Colombia and was preaching nonviolence. He was kidnapped, and um, this is the last letter he wrote to his father before he was murdered. Despite obvious limitations due to my captivity, I believe that part of my original purpose has been preserved. More often than not, we imagine social transformations will occur in a matter of months, when they actually take generations, along with some luck, or lots of luck. Father, I am conscious that to introduce and promote such a demanding way of understanding our role in society constitutes a challenge that will, that will require the work of a lifetime. I am also aware that there are many people in Colombia, especially among our own leaders, who believe we are too violent to incorporate into our way of thinking Gandhi, Martin Luther King, or even Jesus Christ's ideals which would allow us to modify our methods of dealing with problems of injustice and violence itself. Call it stubbornness, but I rather think of it as perseverance. I still believe that sooner than later, our community and maybe all of Colombia will look for the strength that only nonviolence offers. In the midst of captivity, it comforts me to perceive myself as a contributor in portraying nonviolence as an alternative path 
that could direct our people to finally recognize the urgent necessity for change. So beautiful. So this, um, you know, um, um, if I, it's because I, I sit here and I think, oh, this might be my last time that I get to be with you, some of you, uh, because I'm ordaining and not teaching anymore after January. And so um, I sit here and I think, so what, you know, for me, in terms of my own practice, you know, what has been most critical? And it's these two things, I think. One is beginning anew. There, when I was at Plum Village, Thich Han actually spent um, weeks talking about the practice of beginning anew. And that is our capacity at any point, no matter how much we have forgotten, no matter how much we have lost it, no matter if we've been incredibly unskillful, we have this capacity to drop the storyline and the unskillful energies and to begin anew with friendship and loving kindness. So in the same way that um, Beth talked in our um, sharing circle about noticing that her mind wandered off, and instead of judging herself, she was friendly. Oh, yeah, you know, I understand. You know, it's okay. Here I am again. We have that capacity to begin again and again and again and again and again. And so, again, just again, you know? And we always have that capacity to begin again. And so, you know, when I find, when I find that things have gotten really bad, it's that, oh, oh, it's okay, I understand why you lost it. Even if I hate losing it, you know, I just had a conversation with my mother, and I lost it. And it's just like, oh, God, I'm 55. <laughs> and I lost it with my mother again. <laughs> it's so humbling. <laughs> and it's like, okay. Okay. This practice this practice is about beginning anew, that calling forth our energy apart to say, okay, I lost it, but I can begin again. So beginning again, and beginning again into this understanding that the next step is meeting ourselves with friendship. And so it's kind of like I understand that each of us is a kind of like a part of the fabric of the world and that there are tears in our fabric, and that the tears are the places that haven't had attention and loving kindness, and so get triggered when, uh, in particular, with particular external conditions. So in the case of my mom, she is moving into an assisted living situation, and she announced on the phone that she got gotten rid of all my father's CDs and music. And now, before my dad died, we spent a lot of time listening to his favorite music together. And 
I was, you might not know, but I wanted to be a ballet dancer when I was young and music was really, really important to me. I spent hours growing up dancing to my father's CDs. So when she said she had just gotten rid of it, you know, it just touched all my triggers, all my, the place where I'm torn my, in my fabric of being, of, of not feeling acknowledged and seen. Like, how come you, it didn't even pass into your head that this would be something that was important to me, you know, and then you never see me and, you know, this is blah, blah. That was identification with the story. <laughs> <laughs> And so the first, the first healing of beginning again is acknowledging and befriending this part of myself and this part of all of ourselves of, oh, oh, here's the part inside of me that hasn't yet had the reflection of love and attention. And can I acknowledge that I have this part? That's the part that's horrible to acknowledge, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, no, I don't want to acknowledge this. No, I'm better than that. <laughs> to and to say, okay, okay, I can drop the story around my mom and turn my capacity to befriend and to be present towards this place and honor it in that it feels like a, a thread is being woven and the fabric becomes stronger. And we do this over and over again and our fabric becomes so strong eventually that it doesn't matter what is raining on it, what our mothers or fathers or lovers or bosses or any situation happens, it just holds it. And that is the mind then that is free of all conditions. And so we just begin again, begin again, and begin again. So, um, faith in the beautiful qualities to transform us, faith in our capacity to begin again, faith in our capacity to call these beautiful qualities into being, and faith in our capacity to not only grow them in relationship to ourselves, but in relationship to the world. That's what these teachings invite us to. So I would like to end with um, a poem by Anne Sexton called Courage. It is in the small things we see it, the child's first step, as awesome as an earthquake, the first time you rode a bike, wallowing up the sidewalk. The first spanking when your heart went on a journey all alone. When they called you crybaby, or poor, or fatty, or crazy, or made you into an alien, you drank their acid and concealed it. Later, if you faced the death of bombs and bullets, you did not do it with a banner, you did it with only a hat to cover your heart. You did not fondle the weakness inside you, though it was there. Your courage was a small coal that you kept swallowing. If your buddy saved you and died himself in so doing, then his courage was not courage, it was love. Love is simple as shaving soap. 
Later, if you have endured a great despair, then you did it alone, getting a transfusion from the fire, picking the scabs off your heart, then wringing it out like a sock. Next, my kinsman, you powdered your sorrow, you gave it a back rub, and then you covered it with a blanket, and after it had slept a while, it woke to the wings of the roses and was transformed. Later, when you face old age and its natural conclusion, your courage would still to be shown in the little ways. Each spring will be a sword you'll sharpen. Those you love will live in a fever of love, and you'll bargain with the calendar. And at the last moment, when death opens the back door, you'll put on your carpet slippers and stride out. So let's sit for a while. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.